Welcome to Horty Springer's Health Law Expressions podcast on a segment we like to call the Kickback Chronicles. I'm Henry Cassell. And I'm Hala Mazoffer. We invite you to kick back and relax as we dive into this week's case. The title of today's podcast is Where Are They Now? This is the Kickback Chronicles 20th episode, quite a milestone for a small operation like ours. Over the past 19 episodes, we have met and discussed a number of different cases. Each episode, a new case, and sometimes more, dealing with healthcare fraud. And at the end of every episode, we tell you the consequences faced by these individuals at that time. Often, we know whether the perpetrators of the fraud have been sentenced to jail, some as much as 20 plus years in prison, required to pay a civil money penalty, sometimes as high as tens of millions of dollars, or had their possessions ranging from bank accounts to expensive watches to even a submarine subjected to civil forfeiture. We've also reported on license revocations and exclusions from all health care plans, especially Medicare and Medicaid. Hopefully to entertain, but also to let any doubting Thomases who may be out there know that the government takes fraud and abuse enforcement very, very seriously, which should put a little fear of the feds in all of us. But the wheels of justice sometimes grind slowly. At the time of our podcast, some of the individuals have may have been found guilty, but may have yet to be sentenced. Then there are the appeals. So to help fill in some of those gaps, we thought that this 20th podcast would be a good time to look back at both the crimes and the punishments doled out in some of the first 19 podcasts. Hala, why don't you kick off this trip down memory lane and enlighten our audience as to what we've found? It would be a pleasure, Henry. So, as you may remember, Nicole Steiner from Episode 7, Oops, She Committed Fraud Again, Ms. Steiner was the owner of Helping Hands, a Connecticut Medicaid participant that provided, or at least advertised that it provided, applied behavior analysis treatment services to children diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Between 2018 and 2020, Helping Hands submitted claims for dates of service when no cover applied behavior analysis services of any kind had been provided to the billed Medicaid clients. In addition to that, helping hands inflated the number of hours for certain claims for those services to increase payment and submitted false Medicaid claims using a former employee's name and provider number. The state Medicaid program eventually caught up with helping hands and Nicole Steiner. In April 2021, Steiner pled guilty to one count of health care fraud, which carries with it a sentence of up to 10 years. Steiner was then released on a $50,000 bond to await sentencing. However, while out on bond awaiting sentencing, Ms. Steiner must have gotten very bored because she became involved in yet another fraudulent scheme that also provided applied behavior analysis services to children diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum. And not to spoil the ending, but she got caught again. When we discussed Ms. Steiner's serial fraud spree, she was out on a $250,000 bond that time in home detention and under electronic monitoring. Fortunately, we were able to, re- we were able to report on the final disposition of Ms. Steiner's case. For her health care fraud offenses, November 2022, Ms. Steiner was sentenced to 36 months in prison to be followed by three years of supervised release. So if she's going for a three-peat, she will have quite a while to wait. But that wasn't all the judge had for Ms. Steiner. Perhaps taking into account her decision to commit fraud while being on, out on bail for committing fraud, she was also ordered to pay $506,000 in total restitution 
And not to be left out, and also no surprise, the state of Connecticut has indefinitely excluded Ms. Steiner from the Connecticut Medicaid program. But Ms. Steiner was not the only star of one of our podcasts that we were able to track down. In a case we discussed because of what happened on appeal, you may remember Dr. Sanjay Fon and his fiancée, Deborah Singer, from our eighth episode, but for the grace of fraud. In this case, Ms. Seeger owned and operated a spinal implant distributor business called DS Medical, and Dr. Fraun was a neurosurgeon that used spinal implants. As we are sure you recall, as any doting fiancé would do, Dr. Fawn used implants for his surgeries that were purchased from Ms. Seeger's company, which directly and positively impacted Ms. Seeger's salary. This did not go unnoticed by others as a KETAM suit was filed in which the government intervened. Based on the evidence presented at trial and relying on the jury instructions that were based on a 2010 amendment to the anti-kickback statute by the Affordable Care Act, the jury found that Dr. Fon's claims resulted from a violation of the anti-kickback statute and were thus a violation of the False Claims Act. Both Dr. Fawn and Ms. Sigger were found guilty of two of three claims of the Federal False Claims Act violation, submitting false and fraudulent claims, resulting from their violation of the anti-kickback statute. And as punishment, the trial court awarded the government $5.5 million in damages. When we last discussed this case, Dr. Fawn and Ms. Sigger had appealed the judgment to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, which includes Arkansas, Iowa, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, North and South Dakota. The Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals examined the exact words in the Affordable Care Act's 2010 amendment to the anti-kickback statute and ruled that the government was required to show that the violation of the False Claims Act, quote, resulted from, end of quote, the violation of the anti-kickback statute. The court then ruled that the jury should have been instructed that the government had to show that Dr. Fon would not have used the spinal implants sold by Ms. Seeger's company, but for the remuneration that Ms. Seeger's company would earn from those referrals. This is a much more difficult standard than the one used by the government in their jury instructions at trial. Therefore, the Eighth Circuit uh, reversed the $5 million plus judgment in favor of the government and the Ketam relators and remanded the case back to the district court for a new trial at which the government would have the opportunity to prove its case, but using the more strict but for jury instruction. While this was certainly a victory for Dr. Fawn and Ms. Seeger, rather than roll the dice and see if they could escape liability entirely under the more favorable but for jury instruction, in March 2013, they determined that discretion was the better part of valor and agreed to put an end to an almost decade-long legal battle by paying the government $825,000 to settle all of the claims that were brought against them. This case is important because it has resulted in a new but-for interpretation of the 2010 amendment to the anti-kickback statute, at least in the Eighth Circuit, but that but-for analysis may catch on elsewhere, which will make it more difficult to bring a KETAM False Claims Act claim based on the anti-kickback statute in any circuit that adopts this but-for test. 
The settlement also allowed Dr. Fawn and Ms. Sigger to avoid some potentially serious jail time and, rough, and saved them roughly $4.6 million, although we're betting that the legal fees significantly cut into those savings. If you recall when this ordeal began, Dr. Fawn and Ms. Sigger were engaged. We are sorry to report that despite our efforts, we are unable to report whether these two lovebirds tied the knot and got married, or if the time-intensive, soul-crushing blood sport that passes for litigation these days, especially federal criminal fraud litigation, drove them apart. Although, Hala, you have an interesting Instagram sighting to report on our two principals in this case. Yes, so they both have posted the same picture of the dog, which is of the same dog, which is telling, but not definitive. So maybe on our next update case, we'll have more to tell there. Um, Now, there were also a handful of COVID-19 related vaccine cases we discussed in episode five, proof of vaccination required, that still had some open endings. You may remember an individual by the name of Tammy McDonald. She was the director of nursing at a skilled nursing facility in South Carolina. She had been appointed as the COVID-19 vaccine provider for the facility and as such had access to COVID vaccine cards. And essentially, she was dishing out vaccination cards when someone ratted her out to the government. She lied about it to the federal agents, but eventually ended up pleading guilty. Now, when we last caught up with her, she was awaiting sentencing and was facing five years in federal prison, three years of supervised release, and a fine of $250,000. Now, for Ms. McDonald... The hands of justice were swift, but they were oh so gentle. In September 2022, she was sentenced to a total of, drumroll please, two days in federal prison with credit for time served, just 18 months of supervised release and a criminal monetary penalty of $100. The court did, however, tack on a couple of other conditions, so Ms. McDonald must cooperate with in DNA collection as directed by her probation officer and she must perform 40 hours of community service. We also want to add that, as of the date of this podcast, Ms. McDonald still had an active nursing license in the state of South Carolina, and we could not find where she had been excluded from participation in Medicare or Medicaid. All in all, though, I think we would agree that Ms. McDonald got very lucky. She didn't even get a slap on the wrist, more like a disapproving finger wag. But others have certainly not fared as well as Ms. McDonald. Hela, you may recall one of our favorite episodes, episode 14, Friendship is in the Eye of the Beholder, where an intraocular lens company and its owner were convicted of providing kickbacks to ophthalmologists in return for the physicians using their lenses. In this case, the unlawful remuneration consisted of multiple trips, including high-end skiing, fishing, golfing, hunting, sporting, and entertainment vacations, often at exclusive destinations. These included trips to New York City to see a Broadway musical, the college football uh, championship game in Miami, and the Masters golf tournament in Augusta, Georgia. Precision Lens and the owner of the company, Mr. Paul Elan, would transport the physicians to these luxury destinations on a private jet, oftentimes flown by Mr. Elan. Mr. Elan's defense was that these were not trips. These trips were not remuneration. They were simply friends vacationing with friends. How could I forget, Henry? When we last talked about Precision Lens and Mr. Elan, we noted that the jury had found that despite Mr. Elan's protestations to the contrary, 
that the luxury gifts were remuneration, and in other words, kickbacks paid by Precision Lens to, do to these doctors to order their lenses. And that the jury had found that the kickback caused the submissions of 64,575 false claims to the Medicare program between 2006 and 2015. The jury then returned a verdict in favor of the government for more than $43 million. And if I recall, Taylor, you said that if we put the number of the uh, jury award into perspective using the formula that the courts could have used to assess penalties under the False Claims Act, Precision and Mr. Allen got quite a deal. I did say that. Well, Hala, looks like you spoke a little too soon because a few months later, in May of 2023, a federal judge entered judgment against Precision Lens and its owner, Mr. Elan, in the amount of $487 million. The court reasoned that under the Federal False Claims Act, a person or entity found to have violated the False Claims Act, is liable for a minimum penalty of $5,000 per claim and three times the amount of the damages sustained by the government, which is the penalty that's supposed to be imposed under the False Claims Act. In this case, the amount included $358,000 in statutory penalties and additional $131 million in treble damages, resulting in a total amount of $489,529,705.13. And they're going to subtract from that the $2,481,000 in proceeds from a previous settlement with another company. Just goes to prove that friendship really is the gift that keeps on giving. After a judgment like that, I'm sure that, not sure the precision lens can afford to have many more friends. Also, as the OIG likes to point out, what is legal in other industries can be a crime in healthcare. It's too bad for Mr. Elan that his friends were physicians who used precision lenses in surgeries that were paid for in or in part by a Medicare or Medicaid, thus subjecting them to the anti-kickback statute. If they'd been someone else, say Supreme Court justices, for example, apparently there would not have been any liability at all. But this story has an even more sad ending. Just weeks after the court entered its $487 million judgment against Precision Lens and Mr. Elan, Mr. Elan tragically died when a plane that he was piloting crashed in Montana. It's a very sad ending to a very unfortunate set of facts, able to be brought under the anti-kickback statute, but are not all that unique in the healthcare world. And despite the judgment and Mr. Allen's passing, Henry, it appears that Precision Lens is still in business as of now and able to somewhat withstand a financial blow a judgment like that can deliver. Because of that, I also wanted to add one more update here. This one in particular to give you a sense of how badly some of these judgments can affect the companies that commit fraud. You may remember episode 13, R Exploiting Medicare and Medicaid, where we discussed a series of pharmaceutical fraud cases. One of those cases focused on a Silicon Valley startup, online pharmacy known as the Pill Club. Now, the Pill Club delivered things like birth control, STI testing kits, and scanned care products directly to patients' doors. The big gimmick with this company was that everything was online. There was no traveling to a doctor's office or local pharmacy for any of these things. 
However, the pill club was billing for services they never provided, and they were also dispensing enormous quantities of costly products consumers never asked for and charging ridiculous prices for them. You may remember the example of when they sent 96 female condoms to one patient who was just looking for birth control. Now, the pill club wasn't smart enough not to commit fraud, but they were smart enough to at least settle with the government. They agreed to settle for $18.3 million to be paid to California's Department of Justice and Department of Insurance. Now, some companies can bounce back after writing a check for that amount, but not a started up like the pill club. They ended up filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in April 2023, and like a zombie, the pill club rose from the death of bankruptcy when another telehealth startup known as 30 Madison scooped up the pill club's assets. Now, according to the pill club's website, it is transitioning patient care to another online pharmacy known as NERCS. Now, we appreciate that the vast majority of our listeners would never, ever even think of engaging in behavior that is in any way similar to what we have reported over these 20 podcasts. We'd like to think that thanks to the Kickback Chronicles, the healthcare industry is learning from the misfortune of others, and soon kickbacks and healthcare fraud will be a thing of the past. While we'd like to believe that, based on the weekly listservs we see coming from the Office of Inspector General, the Department of Justice, and others, and the cases that we review when preparing for our weekly free newsletter, The Health Law Express, it appears that these cases and updates are just a drop in the bucket. We are concerned that as long as we have a healthcare system we're billing based on trust, there will be no shortage of individuals who are willing to abuse that trust by concocting what they believe to be the next can't-fail, get-rich-quick, kickback, or fraud scheme. Unfortunately for those individuals, the state and federal government are always watching, and the Kickback Chronicles will be there to discuss and analyze what was attempted and why it failed. We thank you for listening to us over these 20 podcast episodes and hope that you continue to follow us for many, many more. If you want to learn more about compliance with the False Claims Act, the Anti-Kickback Statute, the Stark Law, amendments to regulations to these laws, and much more, considering joining Dan Mahalan, myself, and our newest faculty member, Hela, in Phoenix from November 16 to 18, 2023, for our next seminar. In the interim, be sure to check out the Horty Springer website to find out how to receive our free new weekly newsletter, The Health Law Express, as well as for more information about new and upcoming opportunities on this and many other health law related topics. Thanks for listening and tune in to the next edition of the Kickback Chronicles so you can keep learning from the misfortune of others. 